May 12, 2012, was an, an historic day in the life of our congregation. On that day, you as a church body voted by 96.4% to be dismissed from the denominational affiliation we had had since 1848 and to be dismissed into a newly forming reformed and evangelical movement that was just coming to be across North America. This movement is called the Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians. Sometimes it's called the ECO for short. And even shorter, sometimes we just call it eco. That vote marked a stupendous day in the life of our congregation. It affirmed a united direction for us as a church, and it ignited a positive growth trajectory from which we are still benefiting today. I think there were only about 30 other churches from around the country who preceded us that year in a vote to come into the ECO. Today, there are right at 400 congregations and church plants stretching from places like Alaska to Hawaii, First Pres Alaska, uh, Hawaii. I know after this year when we host our national event, I know next year in 2025 where that ought to be, right? Okay, Honolulu. Texas, western Pennsylvania, even the Florida Keys, and all parts in between. How many of you were here, show of hands, how many of you were here that day for that vote? About half of you. How about that? Before that day, for over a decade, the elders and members of this, this staff had been tracking a variety of concerning trends in our previous denomination. Many people focused on some of the more presenting issues of the day, like disagreements over human sexuality and abortion, the kinds of things that Pastor Richard has been and will be talking about in his current message series. But behind those hot topics that are still with us today, right, 10 years later or more, our leaders detected a subtle shifting away from a number of even more foundational historic doctrines that we as a church have always affirmed as followers of Jesus. And it was our desire with this vote and with this move to reaffirm these things. That was the basis of our move. So the issue of denominational affiliation, I think today is a hot topic, isn't it? I want to ask you, show of hands, how many of you know a family member, a friend, a coworker? Do you know someone whose congregation that they're a part has been or is currently going through some type of denominational affiliation? Okay, that's just about all of you. So it is a hot topic. For the last 20 or so years, almost all the historic mainline Protestant denominations in North America, whether it's the Episcopalians or the Lutherans, the Methodist, the Baptist, our own Presbyterian tribe, and many others, they have been or in, the, or in the midst of some type of seismic shifting in terms of their denominational affiliation. So what's up with this? What's going on? Why is denominational identification such a hot topic today? Well, it's will be my contention this morning that, again, behind all the presenting issues that we and all of these denominations, all denominations are facing, there are at least two foundational doctrines at stake. 
And these beliefs are at the very heart of what we believe as followers of Jesus. And so in order to equip us for faithful living in these days, I want us to look at these two doctrines together as they are found in a very small book nestled at almost the very end of the New Testament right before the book of Revelation. It's called the book of Jude. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to that small book now and keep them open as I walk us through this book almost verse by verse. So Jude has only 25 verses in it. So in 25 minutes, Nancy, I ought to be able to walk us through the whole book, right? All right, that's my promise, and Nancy's going to be watching me on that. So for those of you who didn't bring a Bible with you, you can find uh, a digital Bible on your phone, or you can pick up an analog Bible in the pews where you're sitting, and you can turn to page 1909 and uh, hold that as we walk through this. So let's begin reading together with verses 1 and 2. Again, please read along. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So Jude begins his letter in the typical fashion of most ancient letters. In verses 1 through 2, he identifies himself as the sender. He identifies those to whom the letter is sent, and then he adds a greeting. It's pretty clear that Jude is one of Jesus' brothers called Judah in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Judah is just another way of saying the Hebrew name Jude. It's not as clear exactly who exactly the recipients are. But what we can see is what the problem is. Like so many of those early Christian congregations, they were being racked by false teaching. And Jude senses the need to address these heretical doctrines. So turn to verse 3 now with me. Jude says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Jude finds himself in one of those times where he believes it's not enough to merely talk about what he's for. He also feels compelled to state clearly what he and the other apostles are against. Now, apparently, he really doesn't want to spend a lot of valuable ink and time and paper doing this because he says, again, in verse 3, he says, I was eager to write to them about the salvation they share. He'd rather spend his time extolling the beauty of a life in Christ and about the joy the grace and the mercy that is theirs that he prays that they would share in such abundance. But he says he can't do that because there's an urgent matter at hand, something that is imperiling the very heart of the gospel. So he says, I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. One of the things I love about first prayers is that we spend much more time talking about the things that we are for rather than only about the things that we are against. And I like that. So instead of just proverbially yelling at the TV, I know that none of you do that, about all the things that we see on a nightly basis that come into our homes, instead of doing that, 
we put our money and our time where our mouths are in terms of financial support and the personal commitments that we make to shape Greenville into a better place to live for all, a place that reflects the justice and the shalom of God in our community. But the passage we're going to continue to walk through today reminds us that sometimes when the stakes are high, it's a good thing to draw a contrast between that which we believe and that we don't. So that we can be clear about this as we continue to move forward in unity as a local body of followers of Jesus. So most of the time when the word faith is used in the Bible, it's an action word calling us to actively trust and have confidence in who God says he is and what he says he will do through Christ. But other times in the Bible, as in this occasion, faith refers to the content of what we believe, our doctrines, our convictions. And Jude says that the content of what we believe should be consistent with that which has been handed down to us from all the biblical writers and from Jesus himself. There are times when we are called to take a stand on that content, on those convictions, no matter how uncomfortable that might be. Jude then identifies two specific challenges to the gospel his readers are facing. So going down to verse 4 now, you'll see that he says this. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who, and here it comes, one, change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And number two, deny Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. And then starting at verse 5, Going all the way through verse 19, Jude follows with a series of examples of what he's talking about, first from the Old Testament and then from his own day. But rather than walking us through all of his examples, I want to spend our time this morning um, by offering you some illustrations from our own day. So first, again, Jude says they changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. So friends, I am very loath to do this, but I want to share with you uh, a clear representative example of what Jude is talking about from recent times. Before I came to Greenville, I was a member of a presbytery in North Carolina in our previous denomination. One day at a training event of some sort hosted by a local congregation in the Piedmont area of North Carolina, I was snooping around like I'm apt to do in church buildings, and I came to the bulletin board, and I just wanted to see what was tacked up there, and I found a document that had been pinned there, and it was called Love's Credo, and it gave the name of the person from the congregation who wrote it, and the leadership there must have thought so much of it that they included it as an affirmation of faith during one of the worship services, and the date for that worship service was listed on the document. They used it much as we would recite the Apostles' Creed as we did earlier, or the Nicene Creed. So I want to read it for us word by word so that I do not misrepresent it. It'll be on the video screen so that you can follow along. And here it is. I believe in the integrity of communication, 
the mutual freedom to share all that burdens our hearts and all spontaneous joys. I believe in the shared agony of mutual acceptance and growth, the destruction of personalized romantic images of who we are not, the reality of who we are in all of our imperfections and glory, not always excited by the rainbow challenges of God's amazing world, often overcome, unattractive, and heartbeaten. I believe in the burning, redemptive touch of love, exposing, restoring, and comforting, inspiring us with the courage to be glorious. I see some of you already shaking your heads. Now, I don't know all of your individual reactions to this, but I, I think I can guess. When I shared this a while back with our commission lay pastor cohort here, uh, Elder Jeff Messer said, Brian, this sounds like gobbledygook. Others of you may be bewildered by this. Some, frankly, even revolted. And I think I know why this might be the case for many of you. Because I know as covenant partners here, you have been discipled to understand that worship, first and foremost, is about who? God. Who is this about? Us. Instead of highlighting the agony of the cross, or maybe even the agony of facing up to the destructive nature of sin in our own lives, here we have a supposed agony of a failure to self-actualize. I believe in the shared agony of mutual acceptance and growth, the destruction of personalized romantic images of who we are not. Really? Friends, this is the very theological move that Jude is warning us about in verse 4. It's theological narcissism. Salvation becomes a process of becoming a good human being. Sin is, real, self, is, is reinterpreted as falling short of our true better selves. And grace is understood as, as God's helping presence in our struggle to improve ourselves. This is a human-centered version of faith that can only tell us what we already think about ourselves and guess what? Also what we want to think about ourselves. And what we tell ourselves about God and sin and salvation is usually in our own self-interest. And it probably doesn't cost us very much. The message is, you are loved and affirmed. And that's it. No call to repentance. No taking up our crosses. It's grace without holiness. The famous German theologian during the Nazi era named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he calls this cheap grace. Susan calls it sloppy agape. She doesn't really, but she might. Folks, I wish I could say that this statement I've read for you is an anomaly, but that wouldn't be the case. I have files of this stuff in my newly organized office. Some of you, that's a little insider baseball. You know what I'm talking about. Others are like, what is the deal? You can see this perspective reflected in both in what is called progressive Christianity, 
but also on the opposite end for what's called the health and wealth gospel. Some of you may have seen on Facebook something called the Sparkle Creed. It's another example of this. These ideas are everywhere in our culture, friends, and it makes sense because it's there where they were birthed. Years ago, I heard a message by someone in our former denomination based on John chapter 3, where it says in the old King James, ye must be born again, right? To illustrate this, the pastor told a story about a young man who overcame his environment by moving away from the violent streets of L.A. and becoming a productive citizen. There was no hint in the story that this young man ever came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now I say, good for this young man. His life is better, and that in itself is a wonderful thing. But then the pastor went on to say that this was an example of someone who had been born again. The problem with this interpretation, of course, is that the Gospel of John chapter 1 teaches the very opposite that rebirth as a child of God is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. It's not about our decision. It doesn't proceed from our own wills. It's a supernatural gift from God above. And it comes to us as a gift. Friends, the bottom line is that we are being given here exactly half the gospel. And that's why it sounds so attractive. And this false messaging is resulting in devastating consequences, both for, con for congregations, for individuals, and yes, indeed, entire denominations. Yes, God loves us. But here's the thing. He loves us enough not to allow us to stay where we are. Instead, he calls us and enables us by his Holy Spirit to become as he is and that is holy and righteous and just. And this change only occurs as you and I become more and more obedient to God's word. You may see from time to time taglines on church street signs that say that we're a welcoming church or we're an inclusive congregation. How many of you have seen signs like that? A few, a lot of you actually. Well, here's a little insider baseball. That's code. Let me tell you what the code says. The code says you are affirmed in anything you do. God is good with who you are, so come be a part of our fellowship so we can reaffirm you in that. Friends, this is what Jude means when he says in verse 4, they changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. And it pains my heart to have to tell you that. So let's be clear about something. We at First Pres, First Presbyterian Church, Greenville, South Carolina, we are a welcoming church. We are an inclusive church. We absolutely are. But when we say that, let me tell you what that means. It means that everyone, and I mean everyone, is invited to come here inside the walls of this church and to hear the good news of the gospel that says this. You and I are more broken than we think we are, but we are also much more loved than we could ever imagine. We are utterly helpless in the face of our sin and rightly deserving God's displeasure and condemnation. 
But God, who is rich in love and mercy, has miraculously reached out for beyond our own broken condition to heal us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so we are called by his Holy Spirit to repent and to believe this good news about who we are so that we may be a part of God's family movement called the church, which is on a mission, a God-sent mission to heal all of the brokenness of creation and to bring it back under his lordship. That whole movement is otherwise known as the coming of the kingdom. As we participate in this movement, our own brokenness is healed by the indwelling Holy Spirit who makes us, reshapes us, refashions us back into the image of God. Instead of self-actualizing, Jesus actualizes himself in us. That's the good news, friends. And God's holiness becomes the standard in our lives, and not we ourselves, and not the majority of our friends on Instagram. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It caused the death of God the Son. So at the end of the day, what you and I need most is not a life coach, it's not a self-help book. What we need is a Savior. And this leads us to the second point that Jude raises in verse 4. So look back there with me if you would. He says at the end of verse 4, he says, They deny Jesus Christ as their only Savior and Lord. Any close study of the New Testament and the early Christian theologians will reveal that Christians have always considered Jesus Christ God incarnate and worship alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit. For example, during the second century, a non-Christian, a pagan Greek philosopher, Celsus, he wrote a book uh, criticizing the growing Christian movement in the Roman Empire, stating that Christians worshipped a man named Jesus as God. Now, to the pagan Celsus, this seemed like a ridiculous idea, and he teased the Christians about this. But the point is, is from the very beginning, both from within the New Testament itself and even outside the Christian community, everybody understood that Jesus was being worshipped as God. And this has been the consistence of Jesus' followers for over 2,000 years. But especially since around the end of the 18th century and even up to today, there have been other trends that have either diminished or denied this fundamental affirmation of faith. So some began to assert that Jesus merely had, quote, a unique God conscious. He was the perfect human. Others said that, quote, he is not the second person of the Trinity, but the perfection of human personality. His divinity is his perfect humanity. In other words, he's divine just because he's better than the rest of us. He's the perfect human. The effect of this view is to, not, to deny that God uniquely became flesh in Jesus. And it opens the door to a pluralism of saviors which demotes him as one savior among many rather than as the savior of the world, which is an interesting thing. 
because it then begs the question, if this is the case, then why did Jesus have to die such an excruciating death on the cross if such a death was unnecessary? Still, the traditional understanding of Jesus, which the church has held both before and after Jude, this traditional understanding, it can come across as intolerant to ears in our day and time, especially here in America. In some ways, we're privileged to hold such a perspective because of our relative comfort. We have the leisure to put God on the box or to toy with him as an idea and take him off the shelf whenever we feel scared or in trouble. But our lives certainly don't depend upon who he is. But what about the vast number of Christian believers from around the world who live in hostile situations where belief in Christ is a dangerous proposition? Are they intolerant? Or maybe they're just silly taking things way too seriously because they're willing to put their lives in the line because of the ways their hearts and minds have been so profoundly transformed by this new life they found in Christ. Are they silly? Are they intolerant? I don't think so. And you're going to hear next Sunday from a young man who comes from a country in which the stuff he's going to tell you about could get him executed. And he's going to preach with power and verve. In the meantime, what can you and I do about all of this? How can we, as Jude says again in verse 3, how can you and I contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints? Well, just like Jude offers a twofold problem to expound, he also gives us a twofold solution. So skipping down now, if you would, to verse 20, he writes this. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Jude's call here is for us to build ourselves up. It's a call for you and me to secure our own spiritual maturity with the doctrinal content of our Christian identity. To do this, we need a deep understanding of who God is, that is his character, and what he has done for us fully in Jesus Christ. Finally, we need to be able to apply these gospel truths in our own lives in a way that will enable us to see through all the many false idols that surround us. And friends, it's easy to point our fingers at some of those things. It's not so easy to look at some of the things that are not so conspicuous. Things like consumerism, greed, and even nationalism. In this regard, let me recommend three resources to you. The first is a small uh, 110-page book. Wait a minute, Nancy. Can you believe I'm telling this crowd? To, she's looking at her watch. That's what she did. Can, I, can, you, can you believe I'm encouraging these folks to read a book? Have you ever heard me do such a thing before? No, never. No, never. All right, here's another book. In the bookstore today, actually, it hadn't come in yet. Stacy has a book called Experiencing the Trinity, Living in the Relationship at the Center of the Universe. This is by Professor Daryl Johnson from Vancouver, Canada. And in this book, Johnson affirms the deity of Christ, the Trinity. And then he connects those beliefs with seven different aspects of the Christian life. 
So instead of relegating the Trinity to an appendix where it's irrelevant to who we are as followers, he puts it at the very beginning where it belongs, affirming that who we are as followers of Jesus is not, first of all, about how we feel, but about who God is. My good friend Stacy has this, well, she's ordered this book in the bookstore. Uh, it's its own order. Don't run off to Amazon and buy it without going to see her first. She'll take your name, rank, blood type, serial number, give that to her, and then she'll have a book for you when it comes in. A second resource, Rebecca McLaughlin has a PhD in Renaissance literature from Cambridge University, England. Uh, she's a Brit herself. She's written several books, and one of them is called The Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. And in this book, she talks about some of the current messages we might see in yard signs or on bumper stickers, on cars as we drive around town. And she responds to these slogans in a distinctly gospel-driven manner that includes both truth and grace. Friends, it's a well-written, serious book about many of the topics that Pastor Richard has been and will be talking about. So if you want to go deeper into some of these areas, this is a great opportunity for you to do so. Or maybe you can start a book club around it. By the way, here's the big news. Dr. McLaughlin is going to be one of our keynote speakers at our ECO National Gathering the end of January. So if you'd like to hear her in person, you can register as an observer for that event. I can guarantee you that entire week will be one of um, powerful worship and, in, and equipping teaching. Lastly, I want to draw your attention to a podcast by an Australian pastor named John Tyson, who leads the Church of the City in New York. Uh, Tyson has a number of podcasts. One of them is called Controversial Jesus. So if you're out walking or doing something where you can hear a podcast, I would encourage you to take that uh, for a listen as well. So all of these resources are both shockingly truthful, but also they follow the second part of Jude's instructions to us as we contend for the faith that has once been then delivered to us. So look down in verses 22 through 23 now. Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt, snatching others from the fire, and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corruptible flesh. The reason why we equip ourselves with the faith once and for all entrusted to us is so that we can be prepared to reach out to those who have been captured by a half-true gospel with not only the full truth, but also with prayer and mercy and love. Listening to the deep cries of their hearts, beyond whatever the presenting issue may be, and you have to may work through that, but then speaking to them as a friend about the deeper and more beautiful and profound truth of the gospel of Christ. This morning, I want to conclude our message in a little different fashion. I want to invite you to stand with me now, and we're going to affirm what we believe using selected statements from our own ECO essential tenets. By the way, in this congregation, our officers and our pastors take vows to uphold these tenets. I think the statements that I've selected for us uh, speak well to the things that we've talked about today. So First Presbyterian Church, what do you believe? Jesus Christ is both truly God and truly human, 
as to his divinity, he is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, being of one substance with the Father. As to his humanity, he is like us in every way but sin, like us having both a human soul and a human body. As a result of sin, human life is poisoned by everlasting death. No part of life is untouched by sin. Our desires are no longer trustworthy guides to goodness, and what seems natural to us no longer corresponds to God's design. We are not merely wounded in our sin. We are dead, unable to save ourselves. Apart from God's initiative, salvation is not possible for us. Our only hope is God's grace. We discover in Scripture that this is a great hope. For our God is the one whose mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. In union with Christ, through the power of the Spirit, we are brought into right relationship with the Father who receives us as his adopted children. Jesus Christ is the only way to this adoption, the sole path by which sinners become children of God. Jesus teaches us that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. There is no part of human life that is off limits to the sanctifying claims of God. We reject the claim that love of any sort is self-justifying. We affirm that all of our affections and desires will be brought under God's authority.